0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph, and I'm Sham. On a hot July day in Cheshire, Connecticut, a light rain fell softly on Jennifer Pettit and her 11-year-old daughter, Michaela, as they left their local stop and shop with some groceries. Completely unaware of the creepy stranger that followed them out, they took their groceries home and happily went about their day. The innocent family had no idea that they had just been marked for death. all accounts the pettits were the model of the perfect family william pettit was an accomplished doctor married to a successful pediatric nurse well liked in their community raising two bright daughters haley who was 17 was a straight-a student and already preparing to follow her father's footsteps by going to dartmouth 11 year old michaela had already discovered a passion for cooking even at her young age Life wasn't perfect for the family, however, as Jennifer was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which took a big toll on the entire family. Haley and Michaela launched into raising money however they could to save their mom. Those girls raised over $50,000 for the MS Society in Connecticut, but they did it quietly and never bragged about it. They lived in an affluent neighborhood in a large and beautiful house. The man that followed Jennifer and her daughter home from the store fantasized about living in a house like that. He immediately made plans to return later with his friend to rob the Pettit family. Conjures, you have to always
1: stay vigilant. Pay attention to those around you, including vehicles that seem to be going in your direction.
0: Absolutely. You are not being paranoid. Listen to that gut feeling.
1: All right, so I'm assuming this man you speak of did make his way back to their residence.
0: On July 22, 2007, the family enjoyed a lazy Sunday evening at home. Haley had just returned from the beach. Jennifer and Nakela had just picked up some groceries to make tomato bruschetta and pasta together for dinner. When William called on his way home from a round of golf, his wife asked him to stop by the farm stand for some fresh veggies on his way. By the time he got home at 7.15 p.m., dinner was just about ready. After dinner, he took the Sunday paper into the sunroom while the girls settled into the living room to watch one of their favorite TV shows. When the show ended at 11, the girls went up to bed, but William had fallen asleep on the sunroom sofa, and he looked so peaceful they let him sleep. Around 3 a.m., Josh Commissar Jovesky returned to the house with his friend Stephen Hayes. They pulled up to the Pettit residence and peeked through the windows. Downstairs, they saw William sleeping on the couch. Josh quietly broke into the house and hit the sleeping father in the head with a baseball bat. William let out an unearthly scream, so Josh hit him again and again until the bloodied man slumped back against the corner of the couch.
1: All right, here we go. Let's get into it.
0: (laughs) Josh beckoned for Stephen to enter, and the two crept up the stairs to find the rest of the family. Stephen placed a hand over Jennifer's mouth and gently shook her awake. Josh did the same to each daughter, and one by one, they tied the hands and feet of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela to their beds. Then they placed pillowcases over their heads so they couldn't see. While Stephen toured the house to make sure no one else was there and search for cash, Josh sat in 11-year-old Michaela's room, casually talking to her about school, summer plans, even bringing her a drink of water, as if she wasn't currently tied to her bed with a random intruder in her room.
1: See, that gives me the creeps. Why are you trying to engage with a literal child? Shouldn't you be, I don't know, robbing the home?
0: Yeah, he definitely had ulterior motives.
1: They're really in this home lollygagging instead of completing the task at hand.
0: (laughs) Dude, they found beer in the fridge and started drinking throughout the night. They didn't find much cash other than some jars full of loose change and a bank book from Bank America. At that point, they decided to hang out until the bank opened in the morning. They tied up and stashed William's unconscious body in the basement and locked him in. Stephen started to get nervous and obsessed about leaving DNA in the house. Josh pitched the idea that fire destroys everything and sent Stephen out with gas cans they found in the garage to the closest gas station. While Stephen was out getting gas, Josh returned to Michaela's room and cut off her clothes with kitchen scissors. After taking pictures of her on his phone and raping her, he dressed her in new clothes before Stephen returned. As soon as the bank opened, they untied Jennifer and Stephen took her at gunpoint in her own car to the bank. He sent her inside with a strict warning that if she did anything to alert them, Josh would kill her daughters. Stephen started getting nervous because it seemed to be taking longer than he expected, so he texted Josh about his concerns. Josh told him it's fine and to stop worrying. What Stephen didn't know was that Josh couldn't care less about the bank heist at this point. He was living out his sickest fantasies with 11-year-old Michaela again and again.
1: That's so sick, and it's clear that they both had completely different intentions going into that home.
0: I don't know how much Stephen knew about Josh's true motives, but I'm positive he followed them home from that store because he saw Michaela. It really had nothing to do with money for Josh.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Okay, so they made it to the bank, though. What happened when they arrived? I'm sure the situation didn't look natural.
0: Inside the bank, Jennifer tried to withdraw $15,000 as Stephen had instructed her, but when asked for her ID, she realized she didn't have it. Mary Lyons, the branch manager, noticed the terrified look on Jennifer's face and asked if she was all right. She explained that her family was being held hostage, and as long as she provided $15,000 and got back to the house, everybody would be okay. Mary could tell from the look in her eyes that she was telling the truth and handed over the money. Mary turned to grab the phone to call the police, and when she turned back, Jennifer was rushing out to the car. Mary gave police Jennifer's name and the story that she had told them and hung up the phone with a sinking feeling in her stomach. When Stephen got back to the house with the cash, he felt relieved that it was all over and they could finally go home. That was when Josh informed him that there was a bit of a problem. He told Stephen that he had left DNA on one of the daughters, and the last time he checked on the dad, it looked like he might be dead. He told Stephen they were going to have to kill all of them and set fire to the house before they go. He instructed Stephen to take care of the mom while he killed the two girls, but Stephen refused. Just then, he heard a loud noise from the basement and looked out the window to see William running for the neighbor's house and police cars surrounding the entire house. Stephen felt betrayed that Jennifer would alert the bank manager after the warning he had given her. The panic of the walls closing in caused Stephen to snap and fly into a fit of rage. He tackled Jennifer to the ground and strangled her with his bare hands. Then he yanked off her pants and raped her lifeless body. Josh started screaming at Stephen to spread the gasoline. Over the next 15 minutes, they covered the house in accelerant. They made trails leading to every room of the house, then splattered the furniture and walls. Josh took bottles of gas upstairs and laid a trail to each girl's room. He doused their beds and their bodies with gasoline and left them tied and terrified to their beds. Okay, I don't understand
1: what's going on here. They're already busted. What did they think was going to come of going from robbery and rape to murder and arson?
0: Honestly, I don't know either. They must have believed they could still get away somehow. They're so dumb it hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back downstairs, Stephen was struggling to get a match lit in the kitchen, so Josh took it and set the house ablaze. They ran out the front door, jumped into the Pettit family's SUV, attempting to flee the scene while police were distracted by the suddenly raging house fire. The pair only managed to get one block before crashing head-on into a police cruiser. Josh started confessing immediately as they pulled him out of the car, while Stephen gave a fake name and claimed not to know anything. Josh called it a home invasion gone horribly wrong, and each man then began trying to paint the other as a vicious monster, while they were simply a decent person in a bad situation, being led by an evil predator. Once the killers were in custody and William was taken to a hospital, firefighters fought desperately to put out the flames. The crime scene photos on our website show just how completely the house was consumed. The police announced that Haley and Michaela died from smoke inhalation prior to being burned, but the family released information they learned from the coroner examination of the bodies. They say Haley, at least, was able to get out of her bed when her restraints burnt away and walk a few steps before falling face-first on the floor. The fact that the front of her body was more severely burned than her back suggests that she was on fire and alive when she got out of the bed and tried to escape her horrible fate. This whole thing was senseless
1: but murdering them was completely unnecessary especially since the police were already outside the door you were going to jail regardless but now the charges are much worse and innocent lives are taken
0: yeah i'm leaning towards the idea that they did those things for their own sick gratification since they knew they were busted anyway why not take their sick dark fantasies all the way
1: i'm curious to know what the fuck the police were doing while they strangled raped and set the house on fire
0: that's a great question The family of Jennifer is understandably confused and upset as well that the police didn't do more to save their loved ones. Jennifer's sister, Cynthia, is the most vocal about the lack of police intervention, as well as the lack of communication with the family regarding the investigation. Shortly after the 911 call was made from the bank, officers were dispatched. Police arrived at the home before Jennifer and Steven even returned from the bank, but police parked outside out of sight. They never attempted to intercept Stephen and Jennifer on their way back to the house, as they weren't sure if Jennifer was complicit or not, given her calm demeanor on the bank security camera. They were instructed to hang back and secure the perimeter, and told not to contact anyone inside the house. Officers insist they followed protocol. They had no idea what was going on and were trying to assess the situation cautiously. The 911 call came in at 9.23am and police arrived at the Pettit house around 9.25am since they had an officer in the area at the time. Over the next half hour, police sat outside while Jennifer was strangled and raped, William managed to free himself and escape, and two young girls were tied to their beds living a nightmare. Josh and Stephen took their time covering the entire house with gasoline and setting it on fire and attempting their own escape. Josh and Steven ran from the house at 9.56, more than 30 minutes since police arrived at the location. It's easy to understand why the family feels strongly that more could have been done and their loved ones' lives could have been saved.
1: Yeah, like for example, the cops could have simply did their job description and what we're paying them to do. That includes, you know, saving lives.
0: If cops aren't willing to do what it takes to save super rich white people, the rest of us are screwed
1: been screwed dude (laughs) i just have to rely on myself to protect my family at this point
0: i'll admit that as a white person i am still working to overcome the propaganda taught as a child that police are heroes here to save us the more cases we research the clearer the picture is though but sham let's talk about what could create such monsters that would do something so horrific to complete strangers how did two such monsters even find each other
1: Well, it was actually our own justice system that put Josh and Stephen together in the first place. In the spring of 2006, Stephen and Josh were both released on parole one month apart and sent to the same Hartford halfway house. There, they developed a friendship and casually kept in touch. Neither of them had a history of violent offenses when the board ruled on their parole applications. Though in Josh's case, the parole board was missing an important piece of information from his case. The judge presiding over his sentencing for a series of robberies he did in 2002 called him a cold, calculated predator. Maybe if they had that information, he wouldn't have been released early, and the two would have never met. According to friends and family, Josh was a brilliant, troubled young man, who was very loving, very caring. In reality, Josh was born into a family plagued by serious mental health issues. And at three years old, he was adopted into a family not fit to care for a child genetically predisposed to mental health issues. Benedict and Jude were fundamentalist Christians who didn't believe in medical care or public education. Benedict had been described as critical, cold, and controlling, while Jude was described as quite submissive. They took in several foster children as well. And starting around the age of five or six, Josh was repeatedly sexually and physically abused by his older foster brother. This went on for years, and eventually Josh started doing the same abuse to his younger foster sister, Naomi. When the sexual abuse was discovered, Benedict and Jude sent Josh to a Christian reform camp to get him back on the straight and narrow.
0: It sounds to me like the judge who called Josh a predator saw him more clearly than his own family and friends. Look, I feel bad for anyone who goes through childhood trauma like that, but it still doesn't excuse what he did to little Michaela Pettit.
1: I mean, most murderers have a bad childhood, right? But someone should have kept an eye on him knowing the family's mental health history.
0: Also, Christian reform camp isn't help for the sexual abuse he suffered or the abuse he caused. Some people shouldn't be parents. Did anyone try to get him help? Fran Hodges
1: dated Josh for about two years. They met at a church and were both homeschooled by their very religious families. Fran told HBO documentaries that Josh suffered from anxiety and delusions and would often hide out in the woods and wander around town watching happy families through their windows, fantasizing about being a part of it. She mentioned Josh was frequently sent to Christian camps and had exorcisms performed on him, often trying to rid him of the demons causing his anxiety and (laughs) sexual fixation.
0: Because, you know, that's what causes anxiety. Those damn anxiety demons.
1: (laughs) After Josh set fire to the gas station for no reason, he was sent to a mental hospital by a judge, but his parents immediately pulled him out. As a last resort, Josh was sent to a touring Christian choir, where he really seemed to thrive for a change. After that, he joined the Army Reserves, but once he was discharged, his trouble started again. Josh started turning to drugs to numb the pain of it all. A counselor at the Berman Treatment Center halfway house was the last person therapeutically to meet with Josh before the Pettit family murder. He said Josh was an amazing artist and wanted to do better with his life, become an architect, stay clean, and reconnect with his family.
0: Well, I guess there is one good thing about American prison systems. People with families like his that don't believe in psychiatric medicine can get access to the therapeutic help they need.
1: If they don't handle it, the state will definitely do it.
0: Not that it actually helped Josh. What about Stephen? Was he from a troubled home, too? Well,
1: Stephen's rap sheet was mostly burglaries, stealing radios, and phones out of cars. On the surface, it looked like Stephen came from a happy home and loving family. And mostly that was true. But according to Stephen's brothers, he was always manipulating, deceptive, and cruel. Stephen's brothers wrote a letter to the judge detailing a story of when they were kids. He told them Stephen presented himself as the golden child to outsiders. But one day he arrived home from school and Stephen and his friends were using the stovetop to smoke marijuana. Stephen told his little brother the stove was really cool and to put his hand over it, promising he wouldn't get hurt. Stephen then pushed his little brother's hand onto the hot burner and held it down, inflicting terrible burns. He explained that Stephen is not sick. Stephen is careful and calculating. Even with that, Stephen's brothers weren't surprised at all by the home invasion or the crashing into the police car part, but they were stunned by the raping, murdering, and burning stuff. That wasn't the brother they knew. Stephen was always promising big things, though, so the robbery fit. He promised he would make a bunch of money and take care of his mom and buy her a big house, but it was always a lie and she eventually got tired of his empty promises while he lived off her rent-free, so she kicked him out. He locked himself in a hotel room and went on a serious cocaine binge. He hoped he would overdose and be done with it all, but he ran out of cocaine and money before he could. He went to an NA meeting, and there was Josh, who started talking to him about an idea he had to make some real money. Stephen became a kind of NA mentor for Josh. Stephen was well-versed in the program, and Josh was new to recovery. Stephen and Josh started talking every day, and Stephen helped Josh with staying sober. They also bonded over their dark fantasies and the fact that both of them were haunted by angry feelings. Both had a history of robbery, so it wasn't long before they started talking about doing a job together. Together, they burglarized at least two other houses in Cheshire, stealing money and credit cards. Then on July 22nd of 2007, Josh told Steven about the amazing house they had to hit. Over the next several hours, they texted excitedly about the riches they would steal from the Pettit family.
0: And we know what happened after that. That story about what Steven did to his brother when they were kids gives me the chills. He sounds like an actual psychopath.
1: That's one really dark child. Pranking a sibling is one thing, but actually physically hurting them is scary.
0: They were caught fleeing the scene and confessed to everything they did, right? Was there even a point to having trials? Well, the state wanted the death penalty, so trials were necessary.
1: Jury selection for Steven's trial began in January of 2010. William planned to be present each and every day in court no matter how difficult or gruesome the trial got. He was still recovering from the brain injury caused that night. He was only able to sleep a couple hours a night, living with his parents and waking up every night at 3am, the same hour he was attacked. Getting justice for his wife and daughters was the only thing that mattered to him then. Finding impartial jurors was nearly impossible since so much of what had happened was constantly rehashed in the local media. Somehow they managed, and the trial was scheduled to move forward. The morning the trial was set to begin, Stephen was found unconscious in his jail cell. Authorities discovered that he had been hiding away his daily medication in an attempt to build up enough to overdose on. He left a note that read, I'm sorry, all I want to do is die. It is the only way to end the pain I go through every day, and more importantly, the pain the trial will bring to others. While I'm not the monster that Josh is, I am one nevertheless. A coward because I could not do what was right. Looking back on my life, I was nothing but a self-centered asshole who only cared about himself. Just like his many suicide attempts in the past, it failed. He was put into a coma for a while, but he recovered and the trial moved forward. From then on, authorities took every precaution to make sure Stephen couldn't kill himself. Some found it ironic since the prosecution was asking for the death penalty.
0: (laughs) That is kind of ironic, but I get it. The family especially would have most likely wanted justice, and Stephen going out on his own terms wouldn't have felt like justice.
1: Yeah, it's a cop-out for sure.
0: Remind me, what were they charged with in total by the end of it? Both Stephen and
1: Josh denied being the one responsible for the fire, but since they both had gasoline on their clothes when they were arrested, they were both charged with arson. It was only a felony for Josh, though, due to his prior fire-setting incidents. All in all, each man was charged with 17 counts, including sexual assault, murder, kidnapping, and arson. During both of their trials, members of the jury were exposed to disturbing evidence, including autopsy photos of the victim's bodies and images Josh had taken of Michaela as he assaulted her. Jurors also had a hard time listening to Josh's confession in court, and they had to take frequent breaks and recesses. The family was sickened by Josh using Michaela's nickname, KK, as if he was a close loved one and not her abuser and murderer. As a result, many members of the jury experienced severe psychological and emotional trauma, so the state of Connecticut offered to provide the jurors with free counseling. Also in the audience witnessing the graphic retelling of the murders was Jennifer Goshray and her six- and seven-year-old children. Though experts have questioned her judgment in bringing such young children to a trial, detailing the brutal slaughter of an entire family, the mother said that she wanted her children to see the justice system in action. The
0: evidence and testimony was graphic and disgusting. I can't understand why that woman, Jennifer Goshray, brought her young kids. If you want to show your kids how the justice system works, great. But a murder trial at six years old probably isn't the healthiest way to do it. They weren't related to the victims or connected to the case in any way. It looks more like a mom from the community obsessed with a sensational local case dragging her kids along. It really just goes to show how interested the community was in this case. It's probably all anyone talked about for years.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a weird move. Like, if anything, you're traumatizing your children. I am that mom that is constantly keeping it real with my child, so she is aware that there are weirdos out there, but I spare her the graphic details. Same. Same.
0: I don't lie or hide the realities of the world from my kid, but I explain it all in an age-appropriate way. A graphic murder trial at six years old isn't that. Okay, back to the trial though. Please tell me they were both convicted.
1: I mean, how could they not? Stephen was convicted of 16 counts charged against him in November of 2010 and sentenced to death. A year later in December of 2011, Josh was convicted of all 17 counts and also sentenced to death as it should be. On January 6, 2008, the town held a vigil for Jennifer Haley and Michaela. The money raised went to the foundation started by William and the entire town joined in. Lanterns lined up the street, sidewalks and yards while the local church rang the bell 3 times, one for each murdered woman. On May 30th of 2008, the Pettit family home was demolished and the community built a memorial park in their honor. Over the years, it was redesigned and improved. Last reported, it was designed by the Pettit Family Foundation. It included a 30-foot stone circle with benches, stepping stones, and cobblestone walkway and fountain in the center. It's totally self-sufficient, solar-powered, and even has a functioning well. Many in the community still visit the site to remember the lives taken far too soon.
0: That is a beautiful tribute to Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela. Better to demolish the house and turn it into a memorial than leave the burnt house as a reminder of the tragedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no fixing it up at that point. And it would be a little spooky to live on the land of a murdered family.
0: That level of tragedy would have created a haunted house for sure. What about William? He barely survived, but even so lost everything.
1: In honor of his family, William created the Pettit Family Foundation. According to its website, the organization aims to raise and distribute funds to fulfill their mission to help educate young people, especially those with interest in science, to help support those with chronic illnesses, and to help protect those affected by violence. Dr. William Pettit has been an inspiration to the community, helping others learn how to move on in their own way. In 2011, William met Christine Palloff, a freelance photographer who was tending bar on the side at his country club. Christine was 20 years younger than him, but there was immediate sparks, and by New Year's Eve on that same year, they were engaged. In late 2013, Christine and William brought a baby boy into this world and named him William Pettit Jr. William resists the narrative that he's healed by a new family, though. He told the Hartford Current that he's sometimes paralyzed by fear. He said he used to have awful weeks and awful days. Now, most of the time, it's awful minutes and awful hours. He still has racing thoughts, fearful that something will happen again to those he loves. William ran and won as a state representative for Connecticut, seeing himself as a voice for victims at the Capitol. He spent so much time trudging to the legislative office building in 2009, waiting for hours to offer testimony to a committee of lawmakers seeking public input on proposal to repel the death penalty. As a strong supporter of the death penalty and a victim who was actively fighting to get the death penalty for those men who stole his family from him, he has a unique perspective in the government. He doesn't want to be known as a single-issue lawmaker, though. He serves on the Legislators Appropriations Committee, which controls the spending side of the budget, and the Public Health Committee, a natural fit for someone trained as a doctor.
0: Wow, that takes real strength to carry on and actively work to make the world a better place after such loss.
1: Yeah, I can't say I'd possess the same strength, but no one can prepare for that. And you don't know it until you're in it.
0: I hate to ask, but what about the killers?
1: As for Josh and Stephen, one year after the verdict, Stephen asked to be put to death immediately. But his request was denied and the automatic appeals continued. In April of 2012, shortly after the trials, the state of Connecticut abolished the death penalty for all future cases, making it unlikely that Josh and Stephen will ever actually be put to death. In 2016, the Connecticut Supreme Court upheld the repeal of the death penalty and overturned the compromise that said those already on death row, such as Stephen and Josh, could still be executed. That led their sentences to be automatically commuted to life in
0: prison without the possibility of parole. The worst day of this family's life came out of nowhere, committed by total strangers. No one could have predicted this horrible act would happen to such a kind and loving family but it could have been prevented. If only Stephen and Josh's families had gotten them psychiatric help when they were young, or the parole board hadn't paired them up that halfway house. Maybe if police hadn't waited, the innocent lives of Jennifer and her daughters, Haley and Michaela could have been saved. Unfortunately, the if-onlys can't bring those sweet angels back. All we can do is try to support the victims left behind.
1: The Pettit Family Foundation honors the memories of Jennifer Hawke Pettit, Haley Elizabeth Pettit, and Michaela Rose Pettit by continuing the kindness, idealism, and activism that define their lives. The foundation's funds are given to foster the education of young people, especially women in sciences, to improve the lives of those affected by chronic illness and to support the efforts to help and protect those affected by violence. To learn more, go to www.pettitfamilyfoundation.org. Or to go donate, you can call 860-479-1436.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for the question of the week. If you haven't seen it yet, you can also find us at Crime and Conjure Podcast on TikTok. Steph, what's our
1: conjure tip of the week?
0: Today, I have a throwback to a season one favorite, Red Jasper. Back then, we told you about how Jasper brings tranquility and wholeness. When worn as an amulet, Red Jasper can also lend emotional resiliency, strength, and courage. This is an excellent stone for those who have been affected by violence and need a little extra support. I love
1: a good throwback. So many stones have multiple purposes, and Jasper is one of those, and a personal fave. We'll be back next week with another episode.
0: Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant conjurers. conjurers.